The year was July 1970. Serene Jones was a little girl in Richardson, Texas, and her father was a professor at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. It was Serene Jones's 11th birthday. Here's how Serene Jones recounts it. My parents had planned a pool party at my request, and I had, in the days prior, turned the event into an overdramatic, self-involved stage play. The car weaved through the neighborhood as we picked up friend after friend, and each girl squeezed into the back seat, filling it up with new bits of gossip and girl talk. We picked up the last invitee, and she had to stretch out across our laps to fit in. None of us were wearing seatbelts, of course. We pulled up to the Richardson public pool, and it was clear that the pool was closed. My my dad drove closer to the entrance, and he got out, and I could make out the handwritten sign, Closed for Maintenance. My dad looked up at the sky like he always did when he faced a conundrum. He wasn't praying. He wasn't asking for divine intervention. But I think the habit of praying and the sensation of being perplexed had somehow become one and the same for him. He walked back to the car. He hopped in and he turned the key. We are going to drive over to Lake Highlands Pool, he said as he pulled out of the parking lot. I was stunned, Serene Jones writes, recalling the incident on her 11th birthday. The party that I had imagined for weeks was now going to take place at Lake Highlands Pool? I wanted to cry. And then I wanted to scream, and I wanted to punch the back of the seat. And I remember those emotions so vividly that I still clench my fists when thinking about that moment. Oh, gross, I said. I don't want to swim with black people. Who said that? My father demanded. He dramatically pulled the car over, and his fierce eyes were locked on mine. Serene said, the words just came out. And then she writes, my friends pulled away from me in the back seat, and I could tell they were relieved that I had said what they were thinking. But they were startled at my father's wrath. You have no idea how terrible what you said is, my dad said, his voice trembling with rage. I'm going to give you a choice, young lady. We don't go to the pool and you never have another birthday again. Or we go to the pool and you get to celebrate your birthday every year. That simple. (laughs) Serene, at 11, with her friends squirming beside her in the back seat, said this. I never want to have another birthday party again feeling emboldened and staring straight into her father's eyes. Serene Jones was picking a fight with the wrong man. (laughs) Serene Jones's father, a professor at Perkins School of Theology, had also been in the thick of the civil rights movement. 
working to integrate all of Richardson, especially the Richardson, Texas public schools, something that wasn't going too well in an all-white neighborhood. They went home that day instead of to the other pool. Serene went upstairs to her room and cried. The other girls stayed downstairs and played games and had birthday cake. And Serene writes this. The knee-jerk repulsion that happened on her 11th birthday was the, in, was the inheritance passed down. Despite her progressive father and liberal upbringing passed down from hundreds of years of white people propagating and benefiting from this learned reaction to black bodies. She calls it an unconscious bias, a term that captures well the degree to which our deepest hatreds and fears live within us. Burrowed away in places that escape the restraints in our conscious minds. Here's what Serene says. White revulsion at blackness was in the air I breathed and in the water I drank and swam in in Texas and in Oklahoma in the 1960s. And it was so con also confirmed, despite her parents' positions and efforts on these things, by the power that her peers had over her. A little more than a year later, when she's 12 years old, after this unfortunate birthday scene, Serene went with her father to a street corner in Richardson, Texas, where her dad was managing the school board election campaigns for an African-American man and a Jewish woman in Richardson, Texas. That Saturday morning, he took Serene with him to hand out flyers in front of Gibson's hardware store at a small shopping mall. Serene stood next to her dad as he discussed the issues and his candidate's perspectives to everyone who passed by. Then, as a group of men in baseball caps approached, Serene says, I suddenly felt what I thought was rain. How could this be? I looked up, I squinted, and I saw a man spit straight in my father's face. My father's head whipsawed as if he had been punched, and he kept his jaw on his shoulder for a moment, suddenly reaching down for my hand, Serene writes, and then he raised his head up, and he watched as the men walked off. His hand clenched mine, but I felt his body relax and I saw him stand up taller. After wiping the spit from his face and from Serene's hair, he looked down at his daughter and he said, We are all children of light and children of darkness. You and me and those men, we are children of the same God. Serene says this about her dad. He accepted their anger with what almost seemed like kindness. Kindness? What a strange way to fight for justice. And even more, his comment about how all of us being children of light and children of darkness seemed to suggest that he saw part of himself in those despicable men. And that evening, her dad said to Serene around the dinner table, I'm sorry, Serene, that you had to witness that today. 
I do not agree with the views of those men, but it is critically important that we never allow ourselves to believe that we are fundamental, fundamentally better than anyone else. Who knows what life may have given them to deal with or how they were raised. All of this comes from Serene Jones's recent book called Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World. It just came out. Serene Jones is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And as you can tell, this book is a memoir where she is brutally honest about her life and her struggles. Serene Jones reveals her passion to make connections between the deep challenges of her life and the profound theology that continues to shape her life. God's goodness and grace. And she doesn't hold back. Describing her racist grandfather in vivid detail, this is a man who served with distinction as a judge in Oklahoma, but this is also a man she adored so much at a young age, but this is also the man whom she discovered was a nasty racist and a sexual predator who took advantage of her and her sisters and her cousins. These are just some of the stories she tells, and she weaves these stories into theological reflections about her life and talking about the theology of John Calvin and Karl Barth and others, making powerful connections and relating these theologians to the real struggles and the deepest concerns of our life. All of this is pertinent to us today because it's about the demons that we all have to fight. All of us are shaped by people, shaped by culture, shaped by stories, shaped by happenings, shaped by various things in our particular lives. All of us are. And no matter how old we are, or what happened to us, we continue, like Serene Jones, to struggle with lots of things. Perhaps it's family circumstances. She talks a lot about that. Perhaps it's certain perspectives. She talks a lot about that. Issues, incidents. All of us have various things with which we struggle. I had a conversation with one of you this week who said this. The voices just keep playing in my mind. The emotions just keep percolating in my heart. Can't stop thinking certain thoughts. Can't get away from certain difficult images. They just keep playing on and on and on. So what is it that you struggle the most with? What is it 
Maybe it's not as vivid as Serene Jones's life. Maybe it is. What is it that you struggle the most with? Maybe it's something that happened to you in recent times. Or maybe it was many years ago. And you never really can let it go. It's always there. Part of who you are. And sometimes it takes up a whole lot of room in your brain or in your heart. Sometimes. Overwhelming. And how do these thoughts and how do these challenges, these demons, how do they relate to God? To a life of faith. Living out our baptisms. God's grace. God's care. God's calling for our lives. How does it relate? We have a brief but important passage today from the New Testament, from Holy Scripture. This story appears in several of the Gospels. And it's really the first time that Jesus confronts a demon. Something that's haunting a person, overwhelming a person. Sometimes we pass over these demon stories. We don't know about demons. That's mental illness. We might know people with mental illness. We've seen mental illness. We don't have mental illness. It's not about us. That's how we might see these stories and sort of dismiss them. We're glad Jesus deals with them. It's really not about me. It's how we think, perhaps. How does it relate to our lives, these stories? We're just normal people. Evil spirits, you know, we don't talk like that. Demons, we don't think like that. Not a big issue to us. Here's what I think. I think these stories about demons are super important. Because we all carry around struggles. All of us. Perplexing issues that take up too much space in our head and in our heart. We all carry around things, influences that affect our sense of identity. How well we love or receive love is affected by lots of things. Our ability to live and forgive is affected by lots of things. What is it that you struggle with that snatches your confidence? What is it that you struggle with that makes you irritable and resentful? What is it that you struggle with that makes it hard to love and receive love, live and forgive? We call these demons. We can. We can call them demons. It's okay. The story of Mark comes very early in Mark's gospel, this particular story. Jesus comes on the scene. If you've been in the second course, you know about this. He comes on the scene. He is baptized by John. He announces that he's here with a purpose. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. Change your life. Let's get on with it. That's what Jesus says. Then he calls his disciples, and then he deals with this demon. It happens that fast. Listen. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and he taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus throws out a demon, an unclean spirit. Just like that. Think about it. Think about it like this. A perplexing condition that limits your joy and zaps your energy. A haunting thought that snatches confidence from us. A horrible memory that holds too much sway in your life. A troubling past that still affects your present an overwhelming experience from which you cannot fully seem to recover. We're all shaped by people, personalities, experiences, culture, context, good, evil, light, darkness, joys, losses. All these things shape us so much. And sometimes... Certain events or personalities or combinations of experience can become anywhere from perplexing to paralyzing. Serene Jones' memoir reveals the complexities of her life. Even as a distinguished former professor at Yale and now president of Union Theological Seminary in New York and a leader in theological conversations and a leader in theological education. She's honest about her demons. A heritage of hatred in her family, which is a mixture of liberal progressives working on civil rights and very tainted and very ugly knowledge of degradation, degradation and abuse espoused by her grandfather and others. She's honest about her demons. She was molested by her adoring grandfather. And she even shares many more honest challenges with which she has to deal. Demons. What are the biggest demons you're dealing with? And how well do you think you're dealing with them? We should be kind and gentle to all those we encounter on the journey because we don't know what people are dealing with. We don't know why they're shaped a certain way. We should be kind and gentle with the people who cross our path because we really don't know the kind of healing that they're desperate for. Jesus comes to bring healing to all of us and all parts of us. Jesus comes to bring healing. And this is one of the first things that Jesus does when he comes on the scene. To embody, to bring, to preach, to teach, to depict 
the coming reign of God. Healing. Healing. And the prominence of this particular story right there at the beginning of the gospel and others like it, Jesus casting out demon after demon, healing, wholeness, healing. The prevalence of Jesus' care for these people, all of this wants to affirm some very important points. God meets us right where we are, but God loves us far too much to leave us right where we are. Jesus casts out demons and points the way to new life. New life with purpose, with love, with possibility, with promise. It's about the coming reign of God. Our life is rooted deeply in God's love and care. That's the promise of baptism that we celebrate today with the Howell family. The reminder about all of our lives were held deeply in God's care. And God comes to defeat evil and demons, all of them, calling us to new life, new possibility. This is the good news of the gospel. Good news, resurrection faith for our lives. That's the message. Healing for all of us, and all parts of us. Last week in the church school class that we're having in the dining room, taught by music and hymn expert Michael Hahn, we sang a hymn based on this text from Mark 1, this story of the healing. We're going to sing that hymn in just a minute. It's by Thomas Troger. Here's a part of the hymn. Lord, the demons are still thriving in the gray cells of our mind. Tyrant voices, shrill and driving, twisted thoughts that grip and bind. Doubts that stir the heart to panic, fears distorting reason sight. Guilt that makes our loving frantic Dreams that cloud the soul with fright. We all need healing. Jesus comes to heal. By the power of God's grace, by the power of God's spirit, may we not only discover afresh that healing that God offers, may we live in such a way that we promote healing, bring healing, convey healing, wherever we find ourselves, to the ends of the earth. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O Lord, help our unbelief and fill us with such grace and peace that we live following Jesus as instruments of healing always. Amen.